0: Feeling some sense of accomplishment or success allows you to understand, okay, what it really takes to feel that level of satisfaction is this amount of work.
1: Welcome to the Getting Simple podcast.
0: Your incoming signals have to be curated. The things which you think should be demand your efforts have to be streamlined and minimized as much as possible in order to create a kind of like potency that can move creation forward.
1: Hi, everyone. This is your host, Nono Martinez-Alonso, and this is the Getting Simple podcast. I want to introduce you today to Andrew Wit. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Nono. So I crossed paths with Andrew at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. He was teaching back then, I think two years ago, two classes called Mechatronic Optics and Structured Surfaces. He owns a practice, a design practice called Certain Measures.
0: Yeah, so Certain Measures is an office for design science, and we work at the intersection
1: of design, mathematics, and space. And he teaches at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and he's also uh, the lead of the Geometry Lab. Um he worked previously at gary technologies um I believe that uh working on rationalization problems and like uh how like solving uh complex geometric problems to figure out how to solve uh, uh stuff to to get it built and then he's uh worked with um i b m as an interaction designer a while ago
0: so yeah that that kind of summarizes some of the big points i guess i just say that my approach to design, I think, is also influenced by an interest in kind of philosophical and historical problems. And so, a lot of the work that I've done, I've also tried to construct a little bit of a history or sort of more chronological understanding of what our place is as design comp- or as computational designers in a sort of like longer history of ideas, I guess.
1: So, I would be interested in hearing a bit more of. Uh, what was the path that led you here? Did you study mathematics or philosophy before architecture, or how, how did that happen?
0: So I was always really attracted to the idea of architecture as this kind of like er discipline that brought together a whole range of different kinds of ideas and ways of thinking. But I think I wasn't ready to approach it directly. Uh, I was much more interested in sort of thinking about the disciplines which are sort of at the extremities of architecture, I guess. So in college, I studied mathematics on the one hand and philosophy on the other. And those are not as polarizing as one might think. uh, But I think they set a very interesting context. And then after graduating from college, I did a degree in architecture, history, and theory. And from that, then did a master's in architecture. And during both the sort of Master's in History and Theory and Architecture, I was very interested in taking a broad range of um, classes around artificial intelligence, um, the history of science, uh, as well as more sort of conventionally computational topics, I guess.
1: How would you say the uh, Andrew Witt different uh, when you're working at certain measures or teaching at the GSD or working on the geometry lab?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think about my career trajectory actually as sort of like a series of puzzle pieces that gradually I've put together into something which is a little bit more integrated, a little bit more of a mosaic, maybe. Uh, and so, you know, my work at Gary Technologies was very much focused on developing certain kinds of um, a certain technical intensity, and on the one hand, understanding sort of geometric problems very thoroughly, but also understanding how teams begin to work together to create very complex sorts of sorts of things. Um, so while I was there, I also developed um, a 3D collaboration tool, which ultimately was uh, bought by Trimble, which was the basis for uh, the assembly of many of um, GT's large uh, projects. Then on the other hand, one of the reasons why I was attracted to working at some place like GT was to understand from the ground up how a business focused on the intersection of design and technology actually runs, how you sort of build a client base, how you make business deals, how you acquire technologies, how you define yourself in a a marketplace, and ultimately how kind of like the nuts nuts and bolts of how you make that a kind of successful enterprise. And then what Certain Measures is about is taking all of that sort of like technical understanding and marrying it to a kind of conceptual aspiration about what science means culturally, what mathematics means culturally, what calculation and those kinds of things uh, mean in a sort of wider context. And also, hopefully, this injection of kind of like wonder and the unexpected, something which is slightly mysterious, something which brings, to some extent, a sensibility from the, from the art world into the conversation. And so Certain Measures is probably the most fully realized project in terms of bringing together that, uh, a certain kind of like technical depth with some broader aspirations about how we exist in a technological world.
1: How do you approach these topics uh, when you're teaching? How do you embed your own research into what you look at in class, and, and how does that help you in the process of uh, further developing your research?
0: So one of, the things, one of the things that always attracts me and attracts my curiosity and I think also motivates other people with similar inclinations is this idea of a sort of enigma or a puzzle or something that's not fully resolved, something that's strange in certain ways, but that you can sense has the possibility within it for something extraordinary. And, you know, for me, the the process of teaching is a little bit first about sort of introducing that enigma, that kind of strange space, um, you know, Maybe it's a little bit alien, but you can sense that there's something sort of like um, beautiful and full of possibility about it. And then everything that happens in terms of uh, a sort of method or a technical development or a way of doing things is really about entering that enigmatic world and somehow making a little bit of sense of it and then making it possible to do beautiful further things with that. And I think for me, there's a lot of reciprocity between what I do in the context of the practice and what I do in the context of in sort of an academic context. In both cases, you're kind of trying to situate and expand on these ideas, which are a little bit, you know, unresolved. They're sort of intuitions, they're impulses, they're sort of like these prototypical desires that you have to sort of create something which which is heading in a certain direction. Um, And in an academic context, it's a little bit about refining what you mean about those things by communicating that to others, um, including students, and bringing students sort of like along for the ride, or in some cases sort of like seeing where they lead in entirely new directions in that kind of like enigmatic space. And then in the practice, it's really about thinking about what the implications of that new kind of space and new way of thinking are – for the way that others want to live because at the end of the day a business is really about providing something that enhances the way that others live and so communicating that benefit or communicating that possibility is one of the things that's um you know an interesting challenge uh when you're when you're building a business especially if you're working in topics that can appear to be somewhat esoteric maybe but that's uh yeah that's a lot of fun too
1: how do you go about Preparing or researching material that then you give the students or... I guess what I want to try to come up is like if you have any technique or any way in which you dissect a really hard, complex problem and then present it to other people. Might be students or clients or collaborators.
0: I think there's kind of two complementary ways of thinking about attacking not necessarily problems alone, but also constructing ideas. One of them is much more slow burn, and it's something that develops over the course of you know months or even years, and that's really trying to lay out the territory of what an idea is and where it's located and how it's related to other ideas. You know, when I was studying philosophy, there was a very influential instructor for me who talked a little bit about how Kant may have constructed the Critique of Pure Reason and so the Critique of Pure Reason is you know one of the seminal works in in western philosophy it's a very complex text and so people often speculate about how such a complex text was was actually assembled and there are a few different theories but one of the ones which was kind of most appealing to me kind of for its simplicity I guess was what's called the patchwork theory and the patchwork theory was basically that Kant had a whole series of interesting ideas on a whole series of subjects over a period of many years, possibly decades, and he progressively, with each one of those ideas, just wrote them down immediately and put them in a series of jars associated with various kinds of topics. And then when it came time to write The Critique of Pure Reason, he dumps all of those out and starts stitching them together into a larger tapestry. And it's totally a gross oversimplification, but it sort of stuck with me and resonated with me. That this is the way that you can begin to think about building structures of ideas which are beyond what you would typically digest and beyond what you would typically understand. That's one of the ways that I've tried to synthesize some of the disparate threads which end up being sort of stitched together uh, in some of my courses. Just collect over time all of those things, try generally to sort them, and then kind of have the discipline to merge them into kind of like a narrative um, structure. So I just... I just finished or I'm finishing the manuscript for a book called Formulations, Encodings of Mathematics, Uh, Architecture, and Culture. And I kind of like took Kant as an inspiration for that book. And it covers a whole range of very uh, disparate topics in a way. But there's a common and elemental theme of trying to understand the cultural implications of calculation. So that's a little bit about sort of like big ideas and how big ideas sort of come together in uh, in some synthetic package and it's almost impossible to rush that because you see at every moment there are these certain gaps and you don't know exactly the piece that fits in those gaps but your mind sort of attends to those gaps and then your attention allows you at certain moments to see okay this is exactly the piece the new piece that I've I've just happened upon out of luck or chance or you know, destiny, (laughs) that this is where this is the piece that goes in this particular spot and had this experience with this book. And I'm sure others have had that kind of experience in a a creative process. The second method is maybe a little bit more focused. And I think something that I learned in the context of doing mathematical proofs, which is that if a problem is focused enough, there's no substitution for just relentlessly attacking it in a very specific and focused way iteratively but essentially not getting up until you solved that specific problem and there's a, a very limited number of things which can really be solved that way but some of the most difficult conceptual problems are of that kind so on the one hand you have things which are much more about creating a kind of like meta structure creating a kind of like cloth of your understanding of things and then there are these focused kind of like surgical very intense developments And I think those kind of require different kinds of thinking. And then, of course, there's the process of sort of creation,
1: which is maybe like a third category altogether, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Well, those are super interesting to me. The one that you said, the patchwork from Kant, do you have any process or any habits that you found that you do to gather those little pieces? Because, I don't know, those might appear randomly anywhere, right? And how do you know where to put them or why this thing might be important in the future?
0: Yeah. The thing is, with that sort of process, you don't, you don't know organically how those pieces fit together, but you kind of sense that those things are important. So what you do is you begin, you begin with a sort of very flexible outline, which essentially are those pots, and you begin sort of uh, inserting those fragments in such a way that at certain moments in time, you sort of like violently cluster them together and rearrange them and create a kind of like new outline. But Another thing that's kind of inspirational to me on that level is there's this whole series of, or this whole sort of genre of philosophy known as pre-Socratic philosophy. And the pre-Socratics are everybody that came before Socrates. So Socrates, we have these very developed sort of dialogues, which are more or less, they're very narrative. They're very integrated. But the pre-Socratics, we just have these kind of like mythic fragments, like aphorisms. And so, you know, when you read a book about the pre-Socratics— You're just reading this series of aphorisms that have been organized in such a way to create the impression that there's a kind of coherent philosophy. So what you're kind of doing is taking your own aphorisms and just, creating these kind of like collections gradually organically organized and occasionally something it's like growing a crystal or something like this at a certain moment there'll be a chunk which is developed enough that you break it off and then begin to grow it in a more focused way on its on its own but you know I have like this master outline document which probably structures most of the sort of things that I've been thinking about in terms of process for the last decade and then every once in a while something will sort of like blossom to the point where it deserves its own planter <laughs> and you give it its own soil and then it, uh, it becomes uh, sort of – it becomes an element in, in its own right. But I think it's really great to have this sort of like common soil in a way to begin to think about and also kind of like reflect on how all of these various distinct impulses become a kind of chorus – and create a common understanding, or create a kind of, kind of like common vision of how you, see, how you see the world. And you can only do that if you're sort of like constantly collecting those kinds of things.
1: This reminds me of, I recently read Where Good Ideas Come From by Steven Johnson, and he mentions two things that are really similar. One is that little hunches happen over the course of a lot of years, and uh, he puts the example of Darwin with the origin of, of the species that people seem to attribute to him, that he had this kind of magical spark one day and then he kind of wrote his whole theory. Whereas what he identified on the book is that he actually had what, in that epoch they called it the commonplace book where you would write all these random thoughts that were maybe unlinked or linked and cut maybe some people even invented ways to categorize them with a glossary of like topics or tags or something like that. And how Darwin actually I think he he spent like 16 years writing about this until he formalized it as this theory. And there are some ways that that you can see in his writing that he was diverging even from his own theory at at points. And And what he presents on the book that is super valuable, uh, Stephen Johnson, is the idea of what he called the adjacent possible uh, by I think it's a guy called uh, Stuart Kaufman or something like that uh, coined that term. And the adjacent possible was when some new knowledge comes into play on like the knowledge of the world. And that relates to the missing pieces of your patchwork. And, and then you say, OK, this is the piece I was missing to, to kind of continue this narrative or to fill the gaps, right? So I, I just wanted to mention that because it's a, it, it seems really similar in, in terms of how we tend to attribute hunches, like a small, a small hunch as a really great theory, but usually it takes years to to develop something and formalize it as something that people can digest.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that is that's totally resonant and I think it's also really critical to sort of put yourself in a context where you can be sort of nourished by things which will be different enough from the way that you understand things to allow those kinds of other other directions other kind of branches of um of your of your thought and that's a little bit about sort of like raw curiosity but it's a little bit also just being in contexts where you're um, we're impact, impacted by ideas which are, you know, as you say, kind of, kind of adjacent. And as you're building up those systems, you tend to begin to think about them in very particular ways. And so you need that way to, you need something external to kind of like inject disequilibrium into that, something that requires you to sort of rethink that structure in a more, uh, in a more synthetic way. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely along the same lines as my experience, I would say.
1: Well, nice. I would like to go back to the second method that you mentioned, the having I would say some obsession with one problem and not standing up or like leaving the desk until you solve it. Can you mention any particular examples, any specific examples of this? I actually happened to talk about this with um Peter Boyer and he mentioned also that I mean in his own experience he he has this thing where, like, you find a problem and then you kind of can't leave it until it's solved because of just because of the mere satisfaction of saying, I, I did this and it's solved and it works. and
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a very particular kind of example. But, you know, I've always been very fascinated about this idea of visualizing something in a different dimension from which it's created. And that's always a really hard problem because you're losing information or potentially gaining information or filling in various kinds of gaps. But there's really interesting problems around taking a really high-dimensional object, and most, you know, most complex geometric or computational things are very high-dimensional objects. Uh, there's a very interesting problem in taking those high-dimensional objects and thinking about how you can show them kind of like cartographically just as maps in two dimensions and what are the relationships that are most fundamental? What are the things that are kind of most critical about representing that very complex, very naughty and gnarly kind of object? And so one of the, the sort of shape research that we've been doing, obviously, there's a lot of very high dimensional comparisons of objects. And so we developed a method which allows you to take super high dimensional spaces and kind of create maps which are organized by similarity or affinity. And that's a problem which it's sort of like graph theoretic in a way. But there are some things which are very tricky about kind of like the layout of that. I mean, there's some tricky sort of calculational and computational problems, but then there's basically like this kind of difficult graphic design problem. Well, it's something which is on the boundary of graphic design and calculation, which is really about laying that out in a way which is which feels like you have an integral form, which feels like you have a map, like you have a continent, which is kind of like emerging from that information. That's an example where the problem was clear, the solution wasn't, and then there was just this series of kind of like hypotheses. There are a series of hypotheses that sort of refined different kinds of approaches, some of which failed and some of which Um, you know, one ultimately, which succeeded, but really it was, you know, it was kind of like a very late night around that topic. And not all the threads were resolved, but essentially the crux of uh, that method was developed. And there was this beautiful sort of maps that emerged from that. And, you know, for me, the problem isn't solved unless there's something beautiful in particular that emerges from it, something that's so specific that it couldn't happen any other way. But so unusual that you haven't seen that kind of structure before. That's ultimately what's kind of satisfying is that you have this graphic creation, which also has a certain conceptual integrity.
1: Do you have any published project that has used a similar approach or this approach?
0: Yeah, so we have a couple of projects that have drawn on this particular kind of mapping organization. Uh, we have a project called, uh, called Mind the Scrap, which is about scanning scrap material And then uh, one of the things which happens is actually assembling these qualitative or relative maps. We have another sort of like broader project called appropriately enough form maps that looks at large cities. And those are particularly beautiful because you begin to see, you know, for example, we did a form map of the 100,000 buildings of central Berlin organized by these sort of qualitative relationships. And you begin to see the gradients of similarity and dissimilarity uh, as you lay that out as kind of like a cartographic um, object, what we find, and what I think is kind of interesting, is that as we begin to quantify some of those some of those qualitative comparisons, we can also begin to map out the space of creative decision making. And that ultimately, I think, is a little bit of what's happening with those kinds of maps: is that we we can kind of like see more objectively how we're beginning to create and what we have created and what we have yet to create. And I think for me, that's a really that's a really powerful possibility.
1: What roles do you think these kind of tools plays in processing and navigating big data?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's absolutely fundamental in the context of thinking about big data to have a kind of guide, to have a kind of map to where you might want to go. Um, And just to begin to sort of like create intuition about what's in that set. So big data by its nature is kind of, it's very opaque and even many of, the, many of the data visualizations that we've seen sort of thinking about big data don't really capture uh, relationships in such a way that is helpful. They're somehow like too dense, right? And so one of the things that I like about these kinds of maps and some of the other kinds of visualizations that we're trying to develop is that ultimately they try to cluster things into a relatively low number of kind of like continents, right? Right um so you're you know you're dealing with 5 or 10 or 20 different kinds of things and the differences between those kinds of things are very distinct and as you zoom into them of course you can see those relationships in much more particular detail but there's a sense of understanding and insight that isn't obscured by the raw density of data and i think that's something which is super critical in working with in working with large data sets is to begin to create that kind of Intuition, which is not binary, it's not reductive in the sense that you're only dealing with a couple of categories, but you're dealing with enough categories that you have, you understand the richness of the set, you understand what the qualities emerging from that set are.
1: Are there any other projects where you dealt with big data sets?
0: So one of the projects that we've dealt with kind of qualitative comparisons in a way which is related to uh, our sort of historical interest was a project called Textonics. It really looked at sentiment analysis applied to rhetoric. You know, architecture has a very long history of rhetorical texts which lay out positions, right? Or you know, crudely manifestos, for example. And one of the things that's interesting about those kinds of those kinds of manifestos is they're they're often seen as sort of byproducts or sort of auxiliary documents to the creation of the object, what we wanted to do was look at those documents as having kind of their own history and begin to see if we could create a geography of rhetoric and architecture. And so one of the things we did was look at Vitruvius' 10 books or look at Alberti's texts or look at complexity and contradiction in uh, in architecture or folding in architecture and begin to say... Is this a text which is extremely positive rhetorically? Is this a text which is somewhat negative? Is this a text which is somewhat neutral? Are there arcs or rhythms in the argument which we can begin to sort of isolate or understand? Is there a range in diction? How how rich might we say the argument is from a purely kind of syntactic and linguistic point of view? And so what we've been trying to do is actually understand comparisons between those texts And begin to lay out some kind of spectrum or map of what these texts are all about. If you were to map or visualize the history of how architects talk about architecture, what would that look like? And that's something which I think is kind of like has the potential to move into the space of the visual things which we understand as being much more argumentative or much more sort of about a certain kind of debate. Can we make those kinds of questions more tangible? I think that's, uh, for me, that's a really interesting question.
1: What's one of the hardest geometrical challenges that you've had to work on solving?
0: So I think the kind of range of work that we've done around kind of like fragment assembly is really challenging and really interesting because on the one hand, it deals with all of the rationalization, discretization, optimization tools that we've developed and sort of ways of thinking about surfaces. But on the other hand, there's this challenge of of assembling things edge to edge, which have no inherent relationship to each other. And so there's this necessity to create these maps. And ultimately, there's this way in which when you've placed those objects, the entire problem of rationalization changes again. You have kind of three different systems that simultaneously have to be balanced or brought into harmony. And they they compete with each other in certain ways. They sort of contest the same body. That's something that's really challenging, is sort of developing ways to do that, which are, you know, not only efficient, but have this sort of satisfying result where you can see from the object that it's exactly the kind of an intent. That you hoped for. So it's something that you could never yourself assemble or maybe it's possible, but over, you know, with an extraordinary effort. But there's an immediate way in which you see that it's what you aspired to do. And I think that's, that's always, that's the proof that something is working in the way that you intend or hope that there's that kind of, um, that kind of, like, confirmation. It's a sort of aesthetic confirmation. But it's the same sort of confirmation, I think, that mathematicians also have when they complete a certain kind of proof where they see that a certain kind of theorem has things fit together it precisely. It's, it's that kind of satisfaction. It's an aesthetic satisfaction, which is intellectual, actually.
1: How would you define simplicity in geometrical terms or applied to the, these geometric systems?
0: Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this sort of, this term simplicity. And I thought about it actually in the mathematical sense, which I'd like to take a step back and think about its sort of conceptual implications. So when you think about simplicity in the context of set theory or topology or things like this, a simple object is something which has no holes. It's something which is integrated. It may have many, many different parts, hundreds, thousands, billions of parts, but it's assembled in such a way that there are no gaps. It's sort of, it's sort of like seamless and that was one way also that i began to think you know as i was thinking about our conversation that was the way that i began to think about what we do in practice but also how i understand simplicity playing out in my life or in my sort of like creative aspirations not necessarily that there's something that's elemental or atomic but rather that there are things which are always kind of like tightly related and when something comes into when something comes into play it's brought into play in such a way that it orbits around those other things and it's connected with those other things. So it's a little bit about this sort of conceptual affinity. The idea of simplicity is something which identifies something as whole or complete. I just find that super appealing.
1: And usually in mathematical terms, it's also a lot harder to describe things that have irregularities, let's say, inside or are strange objects.
0: Yeah, it it can be, definitely. And so sometimes it's funny because in the world that, you know, I've inhabited since sort of like entering architecture, there's this sort of like zoo of different kinds of objects. And those objects each have their own sort of like peculiar and idiosyncratic forms. But sometimes ways of Thinking about them and taking a step back and thinking about not specifically that object as something to be sort of obsessed over, but thinking about sort of like the universe of objects as things to be sort of classified and identified and then sort of attacked collectively. That can also be a really, a really useful sort of thing. I mean, like, for example, when we're involved with a very deep geometric problem, sometimes the idiosyncrasies or specificities of a particular object create all sorts of red herrings in terms of dealing with it or understanding it. And so finding these sort of like cognate forms, things which are similar enough to apply the same kinds of methods to them and get interesting sorts of results, that can be always, that's always very interesting.
1: How does your experience as an interaction designer affect the way you understand uh, what a piece of software or something geometric is intuitive?
0: That's a really interesting question because in thinking about interaction design, you can have many different ambitions for the experience of someone interacting with, with some object or piece of software. And in some ways, an interest in an interface which is kind of as elemental as possible I feel like it could be driven in, in some ways by capitalist ambitions. And what I mean by that is that our whole understanding of what it means to create something which is successful is about creating things which are frictionless and can be distributed as easily as possible through market channels. It's all about this process of consumption. That idea that we should create something that is as frictionless as possible, particularly to facilitate that kind of consumption. On some level, there are other attractions to simplicity, but I think that fact gives me a little bit of pause. And when I think about interaction particularly, I'm kind of much more interested in capturing the simple experience of wonder. And so when I say that, it's like, you can think about the simplicity of an interface or you can think about the simplicity of reactions. Sometimes those things are distinct. Sometimes they come into, they sort of like align, but other times evoking that kind of simple response that simple response of wonder or awe or curiosity involves things which can be a little bit a little bit more complex so you know in terms of thinking about the user experience i always try to imagine and maybe that you know We're not as involved with creating products which are used in sort of like deeply pragmatic contexts. I think we're much more interested in developing things which have a kind of like cultural resonance. And in that case, creating that impactful sense of wonder is what drives all of the other sort of interaction design decisions.
1: Okay, let's change gears a bit and talk about uh, your life habits or like other things to get to know Andrew with. So how does your day-to-day look like?
0: This is a funny question in the context of simplicity because I you know I happen to wear a lot of hats at the moment and have many different commitments. And so from day to day, it's very difficult to sort of identify a predictable day. I would say my ideal day would typically start the evening before where you sort of take stock of what's happened during the day, reflect on it relative to the things which you've set out for the year and, you know, maybe longer, and then lay out the two or three essential things for the next day, which move you forward on those long-term ambitions. And then the next day in the morning, we've chosen a place to live, which is far enough from far enough, but close enough to all of our key the places where we work and the places, the place where my daughter goes to school. That you know, I take a long walk to drop my daughter off at school in the morning. That provides a little bit of time for reflection. Sometimes, of course, bond with her. And then when I return, I usually find that the two or three hours in the morning are the most valuable in terms of in terms of creative energy. That's not always the case, but often it's the case. And so I try to segment that in such a way that i can focus on the things which are most demanding creatively and then after lunch that's really about sort of edison's like 99% perspiration the the grinding through the sort of like connecting with people the sort of trying to reach out into the world and orchestrate things so that those ambitions can come to fruition and so that you can share those things with others that's kind of what the what the afternoon looks like and then i try to take a long swim in the evening which i always find very meditative and spend some time with the family, read something compelling and inspirational and, you know, rinse, wash,
1: repeat, I guess. Do you have any set way that you do this kind of processing of your ideas the day before? Any, I don't know, do you get a pen or like you use some app?
0: You know, so longer term ambitions, of course, are recorded on the computer. And so I reference those. Otherwise, I try to detach myself a little bit from that and reflect a little bit on the things which would be most impactful to to step forward on those goals. Sometimes, sometimes it's very obvious; um, the next steps are apparent. But it's it's really critical, I think, it, to take at least try to think of at least one step which is not obvious to further some of those goals. And I think that's only possible with a bit of reflection, which is some you know a, away from the screen.
1: What about your workplace? Is it also close to home?
0: Yeah, the workplace is a few blocks away. Our office is a few blocks away from, um, from where I live, so it's super convenient in that respect. There's enough distance that I can build exercise into my routine. When I was living in Paris, I deliberately found an apartment on the highest hill in Paris so that every day I would have to walk up that hill and essentially like build in that core, not only exercise, but sort of time for reflection. And I found that always... Um, very valuable sense. And so I try to, you know, structure things in such a way that there's a, just enough remoteness to, to make that happen.
1: How do you find time to read or listen to podcasts or books or catch up with the news?
0: Usually I reserve an hour or so just immediately before going to bed to read. And I always read, you know, I always read printed material. I mean, not always, but I mean, in, the ca- in those cases, I always, I always read printed material because I really obsess about marginalia and having a conversation with texts. And to have that conversation in a fluid way, I find that I have to I have to write in the book and have the conversation in a very visceral way with the author. I feel like that's important to sort of engage with their ideas fully and sort of be generous enough as a reader to engage them.
1: And do you have a centralized way of like them bringing them back to your file on, on the computer or something or just leave it on the book?
0: I have some specific kind of tab attachments, for example, uh, that allow me to index certain ideas. And so lots of what I read is not necessarily related to a specific intellectual project that I have, but often things come around, you know, they emerge in a roundabout way to, to being related. You know, maybe out of every 10 pages, there are two or three specific elements which are, uh, which are kind of critical. If there's something which is striking, immediately I'll begin to, I might begin to create or integrate or sort of fold that into some other thing that I'm working on at that moment, because you can't wait, you know, when something happens, which is an elemental catalyst for the creative process, you can't wait on that. Sometimes it becomes a very fragmentary process where I'm reading for like four or five pages or I'm drawing for a little while. And then suddenly there's something which has to happen, uh, which I sort of have those focused moments of sort of like problem solving and pushing something through but it's becomes this very organic and I think um nice cadence where there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of back and forth um, with that, and you have to give yourself ample time enough to allow those moments of i don't know if they're exactly flow moments, but they're sort of like the germs of flow to happen.
1: What conditions do you think make you more creative?
0: Some people need an absolute detachment from distractions, and I think that can be helpful for reflection and especially thinking through how you kind of exist in the world and sometimes that can create that can lead to creative insights but the process of creation for me is always um a little bit different from that and it usually involves a set of curated but maybe sort of like intense stimuli right i mean there are particular things which i'm kind of like fascinated or obsessed by or things that i've sort of like sort of drawn or modeled or otherwise created in the past that i but I want to take a bit, bit further. And so you begin to take those fragments and stitch them together, you know, begin to sort of like juxtapose them and gradually, gradually sort of create something. And so, you know, I think the sort of like reflection and synthesis and meditation and dream process are different from the creation, creation process. I mean, they're very, they're very obviously related and the sort of aspirations of a particular creative process will often come from those you know, meditative or dream states. But there are different kinds of conditions that are conducive for the two of those, I think.
1: And when do you think you get your best ideas?
0: I think there are different
1: kinds of ideas that
0: emerge naturally from different kinds of contexts. You know, ranking those ideas by quality is just is very difficult because they're, they serve kind of like different purposes in moving a creative story forward, I think. There are some ideas which are almost reactionary you see something which deeply provokes you and sometimes you know sometimes it makes you angry actually and you're like i <laughs> i have to solve this basically from the point of view of self-respect or you see something which is so moving that you want to understand or explore some aspect of it yourself there's like a provocation there and then there can be things which are much more or ideas which are much more which arise a little bit more spontaneously and have to do with a specific set of conditions a kind of almost like a background condition which then allows things to emerge in a dynamic and spontaneous way and i think there are a bunch of other kinds of there are a bunch of other kinds of ideas some ideas which are tactical for me the critical thing is not necessarily creating the best ideas, because I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I would say, okay, well, I want to create my best idea today, and I'm going to put these conditions in place, and I'm going to have that best idea. It's much more about thinking about sort of like classes of ideas, and being able to understand that from this particular kind of situation, these particular kinds of ideas can, um, can emerge. But I think this idea of stimulation and being in dialogue with some other dimensions of culture is always really important.
1: Is there any activity that you would consider deliberate practice? I sketch a
0: fair bit, and I wouldn't say that it's—I wouldn't say that it's for deliberate practice. And I, I wouldn't say I have an aspiration to necessarily get better, but it's a way of practicing seeing. It's not a way of practicing sketching. It's a way of practicing observation. I think it's the observation that I would hope to get better at. And so there, in the sense that there's that kind of practice, I think there's definitely that, that, there's that kind of as- aspiration.
1: How do you deal with the, like, busing of notifications? If you have, I don't know, maybe you don't have notifications. (laughs) Yeah, I think
0: everyone has way too many notifications. I mean, first of all, I I keep the number of accounts that I have to keep track of to an absolute minimum. When I was a researcher at IBM, I sat next to another researcher. This is like in the very early days of social media, who was who introduced me to Friendster. This is the early days of Friendster. I mean, this is is quite a ways back. And that was fun. And then after that, I decided that I no longer needed to be (laughs) engaged on the social media side. You know, I never signed up for Facebook, not on Instagram, not on any of those things, basically, because I think the signals, you know, obviously the signal, your incoming signals have to be curated. The things which you think should demand your efforts have to be streamlined and minimized as much as possible in order to create a kind of like potency that can move creation forward. Yeah, I try to eliminate those those things as much as possible. So, you know, our company has an Instagram account and those kinds of things sort of like corporate entities that I'm involved with have some presence, but for myself, there's like monastic tendency probably in the way that I organize certain kinds of things, but I think it's absolutely fundamental to avoid the things which are not moving those life projects forward, I guess.
1: So how do you deal with email? So one of the
0: most useful things that I have done recently to work with email is to increasingly sort of script it. And so, you know, if you're not familiar, Gmail has um, has a pretty nice API, which can allow you to um, not necessarily reorganize extensively the way that your emails um, uh, appear, but It can allow you to extract information and visualize it and understand a little bit more directly um, the relative volume of your interaction, which interactions are are really important. Um, it's, It's very important for me to maintain contact with people that I, even if I don't contact them regularly, to keep in touch with people who've been kind of like nourishing to me in the past. And one of the ways that I do that is by identifying through that kind of analysis people that I may or may not have um, had contact with in a, certain, in a certain period of time. Emails, scripting has been super helpful for me for understanding a little bit better who I'm actually communicating with. It's a little bit like the Feltron apor- report approach, but I also tend to script things in such a way that there will be certain tags which are assigned which are much more actionable. So it's a, kind of, it's an, it's a very operative process also.
1: I'm really, so I'm actually really interested on like this kind of, hacky ways or like scripts to customize the way you use technology. Are there any other similar methods that you might use for, for example, documenting your work process or tools to improve your workflow?
0: I do a lot of lectures, as you know. (laughs) And uh, there's a vast number of images and clips and decks which are sort of associated with that. And so You know, there are some things which I've tried to develop to sort of streamline a little bit the process of aggregating and organizing some of that kind of information. One of the things that I find interesting is this fact that we're creating our own kind of journals in very specific sorts of ways. The usage tracking, for example, of if, you know, if you don't have an existing usage tracking software for your computer, it's just a super revealing and super helpful thing to have. To understand it, kind of like a granular level where you're spending your time and how fragmented it is. And that level of self-reflection I think allows you also to be a little bit more surgical about placing, um, placing priorities where they should be, um, and um aggregating and avoiding those switching costs. I mean, you know, I think everybody now is familiar with this idea that uh switching costs between tasks can cost you cost you or cost you between sort of like five and ten minutes. I mean it's it's a significant amount, and so um, those kinds of usage trackers, I think, are can be very uh, can be super helpful. Which one do you use? I think it's called like vitamin Vitamin D. I forget exactly the name, but it's basically like this graph that pops up at the um, at the top, which shows, and it, it can be very granular. You can see how how much time you spend on certain websites or with certain documents. That's yeah, it's a helpful one.
1: What about for data storage? Do you have digital clutter? <laughs> I try to be very severe about
0: the organization of things by project. And so there's very specific top level project folders. And those are sort of like merged into a larger structure that we have for the, um, usually I have very specific folders that are organized by year. So, you know, 2018 interview, for example. And so, you know, during the course of a year, this is also kind of a useful thing or interesting thing to go back and see, okay, well, how many folders were created during the course of the year? So I have this, Huge drive that basically has all of these folders um, organized by year, going back to like 2006, I think. And so you can see the sort of density of projects associated with that as um, as time goes as time goes on. But those projects fit also into a kind of complementary structure that we developed for the company. And so it's there's this kind of organic extension between kind of like the company's brain and my brain, I guess. Very sort of complementary in the way those things slot in.
1: Are you familiar with the concept of quantified self?
0: Yeah, so I mentioned the Feltron report before and I'm I'm definitely pretty familiar with that and I think you know it's funny because I think there are times when that when that can be extremely helpful especially around making certain kinds of um, certain kinds of decisions and I think there are ways where it's interesting, maybe slightly revealing, but maybe not quite as compelling and I think at the end of the day, I think it's really critical to ask yourself what's driving you to do certain kinds of things. And ultimately, it's that drive and persistence and you know habit to some extent but also overarching hope that ultimately is going to push you to the place to the place where you where you want to go and I think the management of yourself as a person in the sense of the quantified self I think it, it can be um, super helpful in many contexts but at the end of the day the most the most fundamental thing is that you're that you're moving in the direction that you hope to go in. And sometimes that's actually like, that's a hard thing. Um, it's a hard thing to say, this is not, regardless of how quickly I'm going down this path, this is not the path that I want to go down. It's much more critical to be sort of like assured that that's, the, that's where you want to go, I guess.
1: So you mentioned this, so your script for Gmail, for example, might make you email someone that you haven't emailed for a year and you you see that because you have that data and then you you do that action. Uh, are there any other behavioral changes that any analytics tool or script that you've written for yourself to track your data come to mind? Something, that, something else that has changed your behavior previously?
0: One of the things that I also do a fair bit of is, um, is writing. And so one of the things that I've tried to do kind of related to the sentiment analysis stuff is to kind of like evaluate my own writing basically in an automatic way. It's not fully sort of like in context automatic, but, you know, you have a text, you put it in and you can see actually your way of conveying ideas and then compare it actually to these other authors. And so I find that actually kind of useful and, you know, potentially a little bit provocative. You can begin to see, okay, well, I have this very specific kind of like narrow way of talking about these ideas. Or in fact, my way of communicating things is more biased than I might expect, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to be maybe aware of that. I think automatically analyzing the documents that you're producing in a way can be really helpful for gaining a certain level of self-criticality, which just wouldn't it wouldn't come otherwise.
1: So, how do you analyze that? So, a lot
0: can be done just with sort of like simple word frequencies. For example, there are also these very interesting dictionaries. This is a little bit going down the rabbit hole, but there's these very interesting dictionaries that show um, the frequency of use of certain of certain words. And so, what you can do is actually understand how common your language is or how unusual and i think that's actually kind of an interesting kind of an interesting thing you could begin to say okay well the sentence structure my sentence structure is sort of like very simple in this context or it's very complex in this context or it varies or is more static and so i think it's it's a really yeah it's a really interesting way of just beginning to give yourself a little bit of feedback around that
1: so what are other like analog activities that you do away from the computer
0: Yeah. So I mentioned swimming. That's one of the things that I find. um, I don't know if centering is exactly the right word, but there's this moment where you see the waves sort of moving away from you towards the horizon. And in this very basic way, it's only the water and the sky that are around you. And I find that a really amazing way to think, to begin to think kind of like expansively about all sorts of ideas and there's a sort of like there's a rhythm and repetition and sort of um you know again cadence which i think is uh, super super helpful and often can become a catalyst for other uh, other kind of interesting ideas again it's not this it's not a flow state necessarily but it's sort of like the beginning of the possibility of a flow state and i think finding those germs or those seeds for what could become interesting ideas and what could become this sort of like flow condition i think is really i think is super interesting
1: how do you define success?
0: I mean success is success is something that obviously is very personal but it's the sort of thing that you feel a sort of profound sense of satisfaction in a moment around a particular activity or result. You can't extricate that from sort of social context. I don't I don't really think it's possible or productive to do that i mean it's not we have to be realistic and <laughs> realize that there are all sorts of ways that our social context influences our desires in kind of like subconscious ways but in those particular moments there's some there's some satisfaction and you have maybe a few of those moments some people have an aspiration to have a sort of constantly content state i don't know if it's a state of happiness but a sort of like state of peace and that's that's not that's not me. I'm just, I have kind of like, a. I think a very restless interest in sort of moving certain things forward. There will be certain moments when you feel, okay, yeah, this was, this was well done. You know, this was, this was something, this was something that I put into the world and it's, and it's good.
1: Can you think of some of those personal moments when you feel maybe, when you feel I was successful today or this thing made me happy?
0: Last year, for example, when we were putting together this piece for the Pompidou, they called and told us that they wanted to acquire it for the for the permanent collection, and that was you know that was a very satisfying moment, and that was it was an exciting moment. It was something which was qualitatively different from just being sort of like happy. It's something where you realize something that last may last longer than your efforts has has happened. Uh, and I think that's um, I think that's important. And those those things can be super can su- they can be super rare, and the reaction to them is not it's not really happiness. It's something it's something different. But that was a cool moment like that.
1: And how do you think things like that change the work you've done? How do they transform it in some way, at least?
0: I think it's really important to understand when you have a dissatisfaction with something. Which is, which points to something that's incomplete in the way you're working. It's important to address those kind of dissatisfactions and sort of like misalignments and try to put yourself in a place where there are fewer of those. But at the same time, those things are kind of what drive you towards something which is, which is kind of like new and fresh and deserves to exist in the world. And feeling some sense of, accomplishment or success allows you to understand, especially when those things happen at kind of like these very punctuated moments, it allows you to see, okay, what it really takes to feel that level of satisfaction is this amount of work. And you. I think you become a little bit more understanding of your own process, maybe even a little bit more forgiving of yourself to say, okay, well, I'm on this path And the path is going to lead to a certain place. I'm very, you know, I don't know exactly that it'll lead there, but I'm hoping that it will lead there. And I know that it's going to take this amount of effort and these kinds of, you know, in some cases, sacrifices to get there. And so I'm, I'm like, willing to do that. I'm going to do that to make it happen.
1: What do you say to yourself every morning? I would say, can I go back to sleep? (laughs) Who would be a person that has positively influenced your life?
0: I mean, this is very specific, I guess, but one person whose who's way of working and sort of body of work I admire um, is Joseph Albers. He was somebody who was you know, an educator but was interested in sort of conveying ideas in, a, in an elemental but again, maybe like slightly enigmatic sort of way, and was really sort of intensely interested in the refinement of very specific ideas. I mean, when you think about Albers, you know, very long career, but really there's this sort of like seriality and iteration and kind of kind of like recurring obsession with certain kinds of ideas. But at the same time, each time he returns to those ideas, there's some next step. And I think particularly in, the, in sort of like the context of technology And, you know, working with technology, there's this expectation of the tumult of new things coming that we have to engage those things, uh, those things constantly. And I just really, I love this idea of working in series over time to iterate through ideas that somehow that look past technology and that look past momentary interests and really begin to build something which is kind of like durable, which has a life after that. And so some of the things that we've done in terms of, like, surface geometry, ultimately, I see them as these sort of, like, very extended series. And that's something that artists are very familiar with that process or with that sort of idea. I think as designers, there's often an interest in sort of, like, creating an object or a thing, and then we move on to something which is sort of, like, genetically different. That can be a really great way to work. But I think there's no – there can be sort of, like, a deep power in returning to certain ideas and seeing, like, mining – mining them for new possibilities and thinking about a whole family of things over, you know, years or decades as being a specific kind of
1: body of work.
0: And that's that's something that I, that I appreciate, the sort of like durability of that.
1: Can you name any books that have affected the way you live and or work?
0: So a little while ago, my wife got me a book that was basically about, um, you know, these very short vignettes of sort of artists and writers, creative process. And you know, it's it's a, it's a funny sort of book because on the one hand, people are distilling these sort of like lifelong processes of development and essentially becoming comfortable in their own skin into kind of like a couple of paragraphs. But one of the things that I found very um, useful and somehow like reassuring about that is that most of these creators, they were kind of creating for just a couple hours a day. They were doing all sorts of other nourishing things around that. But it was really the work of some extended duration to create something that was substantial. And that was something that I, beyond any of the particular habits of the book, this idea that there is a sort of consistency and discipline, maybe not even in the daily routine, but this sort of persistence of returning to particular ideas and seeing them through over the course of time. I feel like that's super powerful and something which is kind of like, you know, it partially has to do with habit, but it also has to do with your sort of drive to do things over the long term and thinking about developing a body of work is something which doesn't have to happen over the course of just like, you know, a couple of years or something like that. It's like a lifelong project. I just find that satisfying and that at the end of the day, you know, when you're 80 or something like that, you can look back and see that's that's the body that's the body of work that's created. That's the thing that I put into the world. Um, that's, kind of like, that's kind of like the end game. And I think it's, it's really important to sort of keep that, keep a little bit of that kind of context.
1: I really like that. Is there anywhere that people can find you or connect with you online?
0: Yeah, so I will say that the one social network, I'm, what network I'm on is LinkedIn. And partially that's because everybody knows why they're there. <laughs> so it's just like very, yeah, it's just to sort of like connect. I'm on LinkedIn. Our office, Certain Measures, is at certainmeasures.com, uh, Certain Measures on Instagram. Those are probably the, the ways that you can connect. And also, hopefully, this book will be out and you can, you know, hopefully there'll be somebody out there who also has the generosity of spirit to sort of like mark up the margins and have a conversation with me through that. I also have this spreadsheet uh, going back to 2005 or something of all of my annual goals, which span all sorts of domains. But one of the things that I realize over time is that in many situations that goal is not accomplished that year and sometimes not the next year, but eventually they always get done. And I don't know, I'm not sure what that says about me that they're not done or that they do eventually get done, but it also begins to give me a sense of scale in terms of the time that it takes for certain seeds to, de- to fully develop. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that uh, things, ideas and processes have their own natural life. And that's something that on some level, you know, we can try and accelerate, but we also kind of um, can, can respect. And there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes with that respect.
1: I feel that the urge of uh, completing goals or, like, getting that um, success in return, that kind of satisfaction from something that has succeeded contextually on the culture that you're on the moment, like, is because social media sends us, maybe you don't consume it that much, but social media sends us these, like, snippets of fully successful projects that have been market-proofed, and we see them in three seconds or one second, and we don't value that those might be five-year goals of in somebody's Google spreadsheet, right? And, and that is frustrating for artists and designers who want to have a feedback loop that is of like a week or a month.
0: Yeah, it cheapens the whole experience of creating, I think. And, you know, there's another, you know, besides social media, I actually try not to look at other people's work as much as possible. Um, and partially it's to try to force myself to create in a very particular, you know, in a very particular way, but it's also partially not to create these kind of like false expectations about, um, it's not, it's partially not to cheapen their work and to create this expectation of speed and expediency and immediate kind of like immediate demand uh, which is, it can be super, it can be super corrosive, especially if you want to nurture something that's going to be durable.
1: Well, thanks so much for your time and for being a, a guest on the Getting Simo podcast.
0: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think what you're doing here is super interesting and I need to go back and listen to all of the podcasts. I mean, I'm super, it's a really fascinating project.
1: Well, thank you so much. This was the Getting Simple podcast with Andrew Witt. I'm your host, Nono Martinez Alonso, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Before you go, I'd like to remind you that you can find a detailed list of episode notes at gettingsimple.com forward slash and the number of this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would really love to hear about it. So ping me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also join my mailing list at gettingsimple.com forward slash follow. It really helps out if you can rate the podcast on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, because this is the best way for other people to get to know about it. Thanks again, and see you in the next episode.